Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical consult in the news cycle that people make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things in the place called Freethink. No additional detail required. It's obviously dope, and I'm delighted to be with you today. Um, I am joined by some remarkable human beings. Uh, Michael Moynihan, who is the national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight, is not in the building and I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you if you won't listen to the rest of this podcast, fuck you. Okay? Wow. We're still here though. Um you know who we are? My Matt Welch, editor at large of Reason Magazine. I love you, Matt's mom. I'm grateful for what you gave to my daughter, that slightly racist doll baby. It's wonderful. That was not a racist doll <laughs> baby. Slightly. I said slightly. Slightly racist is fine. <laughs> She's going to be... In Trump's America, slightly racist is actually She's doing really well. Through your your sarcasm as being... I, she's going to be... If mom has listened to this podcast, know. she knows that I'm terrible at sarcasm. And, and that I'm you don't think anything mean, is I racist. I probably don't mean it. Yeah. And that is exactly right. <laughs> Nothing is racist. Right. Literally nothing. Yeah. That except that, social justice warriors, right? No, I've never I've never if I've said that, <laughs> I, if I said that, I don't mean it. I take it back. I do not think that's right. And I hate not those cops. I hate that nonsense. Democrat plantation Democrats are the real racists. I'm not that guy. Don't do that thing yet at all. Never. If I've done it in the past, I'll never do it again. This is an epic amount of throat clearing for the intro. It really is. I was about to say Anthony Fisher, senior editor at The Week, who you just heard him talking. And we do have a guest in the room with us today. This is perhaps our most dangerous guest in the history of this podcast. And we had Michael Tracy on. And we have had Michael Tracy. (laughs) We've had a number of people. We've got some secret stuff coming for y'all, too. But today... Staying in the moment, being very careful so as not to get this podcast canceled by the powers that be. That already happened. Jesse, I'm going to try to pronounce your name. I asked you about it when you walked in, but this is kind of my thing, it's not getting it right. Jesse Signal. Nope. Signal. Nope. Uh, signal Flare. Signal. No, sir. Signal. 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 Singal. Sing- yeah, let's and just change like it. Like Seagal. And change the it to 4G. Yeah. <clears throat> Normally it's single, but I'll go with whatever. Okay, we're going to go with Jesse yeah. Single. There we go. Jesse Single is in the month. Building contributor at New York Magazine, author of the forthcoming book, The Quick Fix, which, according to Jesse, is already quadruple double platinum, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is a thing for books. But I no, think he's indicating that they're doing it's, it's going to do very well. Jesse writes about various things related to science. He also is apparently very transphobic, and we're going to do our best to dissuade him of his transphobia today. That's not true. He's not transphobic. He's very smart and he writes on certain issues, but he did have a very controversial piece in The Atlantic recently, which I suspect we'll talk about. But Jesse, thank you for being here. It's wonderful to have you in the room. Thank you for having me. Do you want to take a moment to just say that you were definitely not transphobic for the record? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't view myself in that light, but I'm Thank forward you. to discussing these issues. None of us issues. are, none of us are. Well, we don't know that. Some of you, we don't. Well, we might be, but I will tell you what I am phobic of. Discussing, discussing trans issues on this podcast <laughs> makes me a little nervous and I am barely nervous about saying anything, but I, I do have a great deal of trepidation with respect to this issue because I always worry about saying the wrong thing. And I can tell you about this time in the past where I went to do this thing on PBS. It was a show, Carlos Watson, when he was hosting the previous show he had on PBS, which I'm, I think was called Point Taken. That is yes. exactly what it was called. 
And it's the one thing that I was going to do where I asked several people, should I do this? Um, and point taken was, we're going to argue about a single point. Yes. And, you know, and we're going to see if you're going to move the audience from yeah. where their priors were going in and they bring on. You do know, you have to take it or can you leave it? Do you have to take the point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you have to argue. kind of do. Okay. And this in this particular case, they had like a, a weirdo binary. This was during the window where the we were having a national conversation about bathrooms um, and whether or not trans people should be permitted to use the bathroom of their choice. And I was on the con side of this argument, although this is not entirely true. My perspective on this issue, as it still is today, is I don't know that I want the government, not Donald Trump, not Barack Obama, not Hillary Clinton, making determinations about anything related to sort of gender or sexuality on an official level. I think it is better for the government to be agnostic on such things and for us in our private sphere to be able to adjudicate these matters on our own. That is hardly an anti-trans perspective, but I was branded as the anti-trans guy on that panel because they probably just could not find anyone who was willing to go on television and take the wrong side of this issue. Um, I lost that debate. They do do some scoring. I mean, I lost just completely Your, your points weren't taken, you're saying. But I was, adv- yes, they were not taken, but I set all of that up to say that I asked people beforehand, do you think I should do this? Because this makes me slightly nervous. And everyone I spoke to, including Matt Welch, yeah. said, don't do that. Don't. Stay away. I think it's because we, I mean, those of us who are close to you, understand your innate homophobia based, <laughs> on, <laughs> based on your Jamaican origins. Caribbean it's ancestry. Kind of a, it's, a, it's an essentialism, as we were talking about uh, last uh, yeah. um, uh, episode. Uh, and uh, But also just the structure of a, a yes or no debate at WGBH in Boston um, uh, is uh, the, not a lot of apparent upside. But uh, good on you for um, for uh, I was actually egging you on to do it. Why can't this is why I don't <laughs> give you beer when I come in here, you know, and I give everyone a beer. That's why I'm all like, always I mean, like what am I doing sure? wrong? Why is my beer over foam when it's when it's that? filled you can't hit it straight down but i didn't i barely you touched the... told me this would be a loose yeah. podcast yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's too much chaos for me. we may we may edit all of this out no chance um <laughs> but jesse i mean you did ignite some chaos with your recent piece at the atlantic so perhaps before we kind of get into the the mess of it all you could give us a little bit of background on what your piece was about which took me roughly an hour to read but i'm going to ask you to in three lines or less tell me exactly what the point of your piece was Sure. Uh, the point of the piece was that these days there's an increasing number of kids, particularly young kids and teenagers, who are um, either coming out as trans outright or saying they sort of have questions about their gender identity. Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I somewhere in the middle? So I sort of um, I looked at the question of how to best help them from a scientific standpoint, particularly the question of like what the process should be before putting a 13 or 14 year old on hormones because – or puberty blockers, which sort of delay puberty uh, for younger kids. Because um, everyone seems to acknowledge there's like a, a sort of moral and legal difference between an adult where like I think most of us intuitively feel like if an adult feels strongly they want to go on hormones or get surgery, they should probably have access to it. Like maybe there should be some process. But I haven't encountered a lot of people, even conservatives, who are like, no, no one should be able to transition. I think with uh, teenagers, it's a little bit different. So I basically – reported on that controversy and talked to a lot of people and parents who have been through it in one way or another. And you received a great deal of criticism after writing that piece. It might be better for you to summarize the 
nature of the criticism you were receiving? Sure. I basically looked and look at transition the way a lot of clinicians do and the way a lot of scientists do, which is like, it's basically a treatment for a condition called gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And like any other treatment, there's going to be a diagnostic process and you're going to tell people what the pros and cons are and not everyone is happy they went through it. So my story included, um, you know, some people who weren't happy they transitioned and transitioned back, including uh, so-called female to male transitioners who had mastectomies and then regretted them. Because I, I do think it's important to know, you know, why that is, why they went through with this and then regretted it. So I think a lot of the controversy was over the fact that I, um, you know, wasn't treating transition as something that's automatically good. Mm -hmm. uh, the best evidence we have suggests most people who transition are happy with it. But like, we don't have a lot of data on this. We don't have a lot of recent data on it. And I think um, most of the controversy stemmed from people saying like, why are you sort of doing this uh, quote unquote, just asking questions things? You know, they sort of compared it to saying like, oh no, you know, I don't dislike gay people. I'm just worried like, aren't there health risks and that lifestyle? And and that was a comparison a lot of people drew. And, um, you know, it, it's tricky. I think this is a genuinely complicated issue. 10 years ago, was this even a thing? I mean, it, it feels like in my um, anecdotal and very parental uh, kind of thing. I, I see it among uh, friends of mine who have kids who are becoming teenagers. I see it discussed in a public school in Brooklyn where my daughter is, uh, is going into fifth grade uh, in ways that were unimaginable. And maybe I just didn't encounter it, but it feels like there's a whole lot of new stuff happening with 13 and 14 year olds that just wasn't really much of a possibility in most of the country 10, 15 years ago. What are the numbers like? Yeah. I mean, I think there were always kids who from a very young age felt gender dysphoric, which just means discomfort with, with your biological sex and with the gender roles, uh, the experience of being seen as male or female, that's gender dysphoria. I think there were always those kids. What's new is that as of 10 years ago, we had this whole medical path where a kid who's gender dysphoric, you can delay puberty and then take hormones that'll basically put you through the um, the so-called cross-sex puberty. So if you're born male, but are a trans woman, you know, you can then go through a female puberty and grow breasts and um, basically pass as a woman. So it's a really high stakes decision. Like, are you going to block your kid's puberty and give them cross-sex hormones so they'll like, they'll most likely pass as the other sex versus are you not sure enough? Are you going to delay it? Um, basically, the older you get, the harder it is to pass as the other sex. So like if you have a kid who's blocked and then goes on hormones, they'll pass. And, and you know, passing is obviously a big deal because then you can really live as the sex you feel you are. Um, so that's part of why this is so controversial. So I don't, I don't think it's new that kids are trans or feel gender but, dysphoric. But are treated in, in a proactive way right. that might involve hormones, might involve cutting, which seems to be eh, kind of a big deal to cut things. I think, Jesse, I mean, you did a, a number of things in the piece that I thought were like fair and reasonable. And I mean, the first thing is you you explicitly talk about the dearth of scientific research around these issues and the need for more examination on, on sort of all sides, both with respect to the long-term consequences of giving children hormone, and you do cite a couple of different researchers in there, some of whom suspect this is probably not a huge deal, yep. some who say we don't really know. And then the related issue of someone who, I mean, we're, we're talking about adolescents here, and for teenagers who are, or young people who are going through puberty, they're, they're kind of insane in a lot of ways, like they're trying to find themselves. They are turning into goths or jocks or nerds or whatever the hell it is kids do. Fisher, mostly parent goth. of three, is yeah. vigorously nodding over here. Yeah. Well, Fisher was also all three of those things at yeah. different times. If never, you consider a, goth, like a, jock a chess a team. Never, never got goth. goth, but I played sports, yeah, had a metalhead period and a grunge period. So. Yeah. 
For me, my my rebellion was ska. I had a Guido period. <laughs> I had a Guido period. So I had four. I had yeah. four personality crises. Holy cow! Uh, in, uh, in high school, like you were a Mets fan for a while, or no? no I mean, I don't. I, I don't, don't get that the far. connection there. But um, <laughs> I, I, it was it was more like uh, wearing it was the the uniform in the uh, mid nineties in suburban New York was uh, black Reeboks uh, called Guibocks. Huh. Oh. And, uh, you know, way too tight jeans and uh, slicked hair, stuff like that. I never had, like, my ears pierced, but that was a big part of the look. Did huh. you, like, listen to Joe Piscopo records? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I had to endure freestyle. Do you know what that uh, that musical genre is? No. It's, like, really, like, it's it sounded incredibly dated at the time, but it was it's dance music that was made by Latinos in the Bronx in, like, the 80s. But Guidos in the suburbs got to it in about the mid-90s. And, uh, yeah, these guys, everybody I hung out with was bumping this stuff out of the back of their, their you know, they had, they had, uh, huge subwoofers in their trunks and all that stuff. I could never get into that, but I had to endure it. You're driving like El Caminos with uh, <laughs> hydraulics like and rocks stuff. and stuff like that. All over and I, I got my, I got my Camry, you know, yeah. and I, I could, I, I would never allow that stuff in my car, you well, know, but I'd, I'm just <laughs> glad that, that, uh, there wasn't any surgical decisions involved with your, yeah, I was yeah, going to say this, is, of, uh, this is a very, this is a very long digression in the midst of the question that i was kind of sort of posing but personality crises are universal yeah when you're when you're an adolescent adolescents have a lot of these yeah. different crises yeah. of identity or at least uncertainty about their identity and for a medical practitioner or uh, someone who's doing some a psychiatric evaluation someone who's genuinely supportive like when a young person comes in and they have their mind set on fundamentally transforming their body in some kind of way that has repercussions that they're simply not able to calculate. And it, it doesn't only hold in the context of like trans issues. I remember a, a friend of ours who has a younger son who they, he and his son came by to visit. He's just getting ready to graduate from like high school. But I, I often think about all of the decisions that he makes between the age of like 12 and 17 while he's in high school and the degree to which those decisions have profound consequences for the rest of his life. And he is almost certainly completely unqualified to be making those decisions for himself. Right. Na- name one good decision anybody in this room made between the ages I, of I got and one, and it was amazing. Okay. I met my wife, Tracy, uh, and I decided to date her. Uh, and I ended go. up marrying he her. He shut you down real quick. Mine, uh, mine, mine, mine was choosing one. not to go to school near where I grew up and get as far away as I could. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and, 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 that was and, my choice. And in general, I mean, it's certainly true that so I could what? have made better okay. decisions, but I mean, my life is pretty remarkable. So Definitely. I wouldn't change. You should have heard listeners at home <laughs> before we started this thing, before Jesse got here, uh, Camille showed up. I think you just like snorted an entire like a rack of Adderall. <laughs> I did not. Bouncing off yeah, the wall. Last week you were dragging ass because you didn't have. Yeah, that's true. Pepper. I didn't have my drugs. Yeah. And my meth. Anthony invoked the specter of uh, what it might be like in theory, perhaps in practice, to fly coach with a child, with a with a fourteen month old whose diaper you might change. I have I've seen Camille in in close quarters now for about the last five six years. We've gone through a lot together. We've even traveled together. We've stood in a rental car line together. When we traveled together, how did we fly? How did we fly? First class. Did we? Did I fly first class? First class. I'm not sure. I did. This so, was the Swiss junket. Oh, in that one. But when you yeah. and I and Kennedy flew together, oh, yeah. there was a lot of judging of the lines that did I was you, Did you guys go out to hmm. LA together? No, we went down to Florida for a reason oh. weekend, yeah. which was- a, I don't remember how we flew. 
Uh, I don't remember it. There being was a awful. lot of judging about uh, about uh, uh, my my choices there. But anyways, uh, it was as if Camille had stepped on a a, a, a poisonous viper. <laughs> <laughs> Such was his immediate visceral revulsion to the notion of a flying coach and b flying coach with someone who might need a diaper. If I knew that this might come up on the show today, <laughs> I absolutely would have at least grabbed 45 seconds of this squealing squirting. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to see that. Violence and no. and my wife looking at me like on you're totally not getting. I mean, out this, of this. You're, you're you'd like, be like because my wife carries a ninety percent of the time. So no, but this the wiggling was was no. my my job. You'd be like one of those weird people who like watches footage of the Rwandan genocide. I'm like, oh wow, this is so interesting. We're learning. That's terrible. That's gross. I don't need to see that. So, no one needs. So my to see. my my, need my, rea- my reality is your tragedy porn. I mean, listen, <laughs> yeah. it could be my reality too. It's not like I've never flown coach. I just hate it. I hate it. I know what the experience is like. I feel for the American people. I feel huh. like we should do something about this. There ought to be a law. Yeah. It, that Ocasio-Cortez. Hey, you know what? I'll go I full, I'll go totally full status if, if, they, if we, you know, if, yeah. you know, I can get a, you know, a couple more inches. Well, of only, on, only on the commercial airline travel here in the United States of America. But also, yeah, how, that, how tall are you? How tall? Not, oh, yeah. Five, nine and a half. Dude, I'm six four. I'm stealing that half. It's fake. Four? But. Yeah, you can't. Six four, coach, is a whole different. Yeah. I don't yeah. feel like you can really understand my soccer. So wait, you are a, a quadruple double platinum selling author. Future selling author. Oh, okay. Soon. So, so the Rolexes and the gold spinner chains and all that other stuff. That's exactly what I'm going to yeah. uh, invest all my earnings in. Jesse, yeah. you write That's a lot great. about free speech stuff, and a lot of times you count you come on uh, the dark libertarian side of these arguments um, from your otherwise more or less kind of liberal editorial purchase. And go ahead and correct cock. Uh, I need to go straight. <laughs> um, but um, through that kind of lens of, you know, the, the meta uh, analysis of where we are at when we talk about the debate, the discourse and all this kind of stuff. Um, if you can talk just a little bit about the reaction to your piece about that um, and and what that says about people's willingness to kind of engage in ideas or or did you not come to conclusions that had anything to do with that? I think, I mean, I think that's not really a free speech issue. It's sort of a, the pieces people publish, like that's sort of a internet attention economy issue. Like there was, there were some really outraged pieces that sort of, um, in my view, didn't capture the argument actually going on among clinicians and among parents and among the people who actually study this stuff, which is how do you, how do you balance the fact that a 14 year old feels very strongly about something with the fact that as Camille said, adolescents are sort of in a, a state of, of tumult and change. And I, I think that's a genuinely interesting and tricky question, especially yep. when you talk to, um, you know, desisters, which is people who uh, have gender dysphoria, but then it goes away on its own, which statistically it, it often does in time. What's the, what was the term? Desister. Uh, Desister meaning okay. your, your gender dysphoria desists. There's like massive controversy over how often that happens. We really do know, like the same way we know uh, global warming's happening. I'm looking around for any. Trying. The trying. same way we know. Trying to do it. Desistance <laughs> <laughs> happens. For Bullshit. <laughs> Fake news. Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. Jacked up. <laughs> so the point is like there, there are actually, there really are tricky conversations going on when you sure. talk to like the top experts in the country studying this stuff. And I, um, some of the reactions were more just like outraged that anyone would dare question this stuff or write this piece. But I should say like, it's always a two tiered thing, right? Where like the Twitter reaction is, is everyone tramping all over each other to be as outraged as possible. The, mm-hmm. the private emails and DMs I got were totally different. They were probably 
80% positive and thoughtful. And the private critiques I get tend to be much more like substantive because you can definitely make an honest critique of this piece. Like maybe, you know, I shouldn't have given so much space to detransitioners or maybe, you know, the story we led with should have been further down. There's like all kinds of critiques, but to act like this isn't a conversation sure. going on or there's nothing to discuss, I, I just think is inaccurate. Having now reported on this for two and a half or three years. Yeah. I think that the one thing that I, I, I was really kind of turning over in my head as I, as I read the piece um, well, really after reading the piece is I just don't know what people would think is fair in terms of the amount of space that you're supposed to give to people who have in fact had regrets afterwards right. to the extent you're not heaping scorn on people who have a desire to transition to the extent you're not encouraging compassion for any person who finds themselves dealing with gender dysphoria. Like that's one thing, but once you're doing that, it seems to me that spending time dealing with people who not only are either dealing with gender dysphoria or think they might be and are in fact not, um, and then no longer are, you know, they, what's the word? Desister? Desister. When you said it, I kept having, I'm not going to even say it. I don't want to make the joke because then. Yeah, don't. I, so yeah, keep, keep it keep straight. Yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> that was a close one. I don't know what, I don't, I don't know gonna, what he was going to say, but what I What was he going to do? We're all like, this is the like our one. asses each like lifted an inch off the chair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was making a point that that was probably going somewhere. Yeah. But the bottom line was that I just don't know what people think is adequate when it comes to like uh, how much how much of the the negative potential no no that's not quite right like what you're saying what should you focus on basically how much of the yeah. side effects should we actually allow into the conversation not side effects but potential downside right risk? and well and I, I would i think the counterpoint to that if i were sort of like bashing my own piece i would say there are a shitload of trans people who like have wanted hormones forever have wanted surgery forever and society has stymied them forever they haven't yeah. been able to get it there's huge swaths of the country with no resources sure so if i was a you know a 50 year old trans person who had wanted to transition for decades and i couldn't do it and then finally in my 40s i did it and then i look at the atlantic on the newsstand and like they're saying oh but what if you shouldn't transition I definitely understand why someone like that might not react well to the way we prioritize things. I um, I think our approach was just we want to maximize the best possible outcomes for anyone with gender dysphoria, no matter their age. And I and I, yeah, I think it's really tricky. And I think there's really good faith critiques of the way of what we prioritized. Uh, I don't think the piece was any sort of outrageous, like out there, radical thing. Because I I'm really just going on like what the professionals say. I'm an old, and we can we can uh, bounce out of the topic here uh, after this uh, old man uh, talk. Uh, but um, you know, I I feel like that I have an old person's view on maybe not trans things, but just the, the proliferation of sexual or gender identities now. Um, whatever pronouns are being used, I, I'm 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 fine with all of it. I don't understand about eighty percent of it, and so I have the general uh, impression. Uh, unleavened by enough experience, that stuff is moving fast. Yeah. And so in the science and the medicine of it, is stuff actually moving fast? Or is that an old, an old man shaking fist at clouds and worrying about stuff that he doesn't understand? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the cultural and linguistic stuff is moving fast. I think like, so if you wanted to just get one cohort of kids who transitioned young and went on blockers and hormones, that takes decades because you need decades before you can have long-term outcome data. That's going to take a while. And like the I don't think researchers have done a great job like 
tracking everything they could track and like different clinics, like looking after the kids over the long run. We only have a few data sets of kids who transitioned early and they're mm-hmm. still young. Linguistically and culturally, yeah, it's a mile a minute. And and there are things that are really big now and seen as important that maybe in 20 years will be I, I need to like preface this with like an can I take an hour to preface what I'm about to say? Nope. Go for it. We'll we'll just cut it all. Yeah. There are there are certain aspects of the present, the way we talk about this in liberal spaces, that will be seen as a little bit trendy. A little bit. That doesn't mean trans people are trend. It doesn't mean gender dysphoria isn't real. It means like any big new cultural thing is complicated. And it's like an explosion of new ideas and new terms. And we just need to sort of take it in stride and not take ourselves seriously and let and I think let people explore who they are basically without judgment. So I'm going to get in trouble. Was that, that, that doesn't sound transphobic, man. I'm disappointed. I know. Sorry. So I'm, we'll do. We'll say that for the back half of the show. I'm going to ask one question. Uh oh. One last question. And and I'm seriously. This if this is not a Look good question to ask in this context, we will cut this whole thing for the podcast. Wow, in he, fact, in either the case, Jews never seen in either case, in either case, I'm going to cut this part out because you don't know what I'm getting ready to say. Um, body integrity disorder. Yep. And gender dysphoria. Yep. I don't know how to disentangle the two things. And I know that with body integrity disorder, I mean, these are people who believe that their left arm does not belong on their body right. and want to have it removed. A surgical remedy for that condition might be to remove your left arm. Yep. There are very few doctors who will perform that procedure in many cases, not many cases. In some cases, there are people who remove their own arm. They feel relief afterwards. There is a sensibility, I think, that most people have when I describe that, like that, I mean, we probably shouldn't be cutting people's left arm off. We should try to help them figure this out. And I have a difficult time, and this is not condemning anything. This isn't doubting that people feel a particular way. This isn't even saying that a surgical remedy isn't appropriate. But I have a difficult time disentangling why surgery is an appropriate remedy in one context and not another. And I'm not certain if it's sort of nothing more than just kind of social norms. And uh, I don't know. Can you disentangle that for me? First of all, how dare you? (laughs) Thank you. No. uh, Thank you. I I think it's really tricky. Look, all I can say is I I spent two hours talking to um, Diane Aronsaft, who is seen as one of the most pro-trans affirming clinicians uh, in the world. She's written multiple books about this. And she told me on the record, so I can share it, that she thinks there could be sort of similar neurological correlates between people who are deeply dysphoric. And I forget if she said um, body dysmorphia or something like anorexia, some Mm -hmm. other condition where like you just feel like you're in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. She was open to that idea. I don't know enough about the underlying science, but I don't think it's crazy. I also think like, okay, let's say someone really feels like they're not supposed to have a right arm and you don't have a way to help them and you make them go through therapy. And at the end of the day, you might determine rationally, like the best thing we can do for this person is take off their arm. As long as they're an adult and they understand what that entails and that they're not going to have an arm. I, I mean, I'm not a libertarian, but isn't that the libertarian stance? Like let them, if that's really, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not making any sort of moral proclamation. I'm just trying to in my mind kind of disentangle the two phenomena. And it sounds like what you're saying is we, we, we don't really know to what extent these are driven by similar processes. Yeah. In fact, in your piece, you say, you talk about kind of the, the milieu of contributing factors that might actually be potential causes of gender dysphoria. Yeah. Biopsychosocial. Really know. Yeah. There's yeah. a term biopsychosocial psychiatrists use to describe a lot of conditions. Like sure. if you're depressed, it could be a combination of your biology, uh, psychology, and social influences. Yeah. 
I think that's absolutely true for gender dysphoria. And that's what the experts think. Like, it's just, it's really complicated. I'm grateful that we had that exchange. I would suggest that we perhaps move on to some of the things that have happened over the course of the last seven days or so. So we could talk about the news of the moment. There are a great many things going on. The reality television star president who hired some reality television star staffers to work in his White House, only the best people, obviously, um, is seemingly having some trouble. Omarosa was fired at some point in the past. She is back. She has a new book that she is hawking. And uh, she makes a number of claims about this particular White House. Uh, she claims that the chief of staff at the White House threatened her in a meeting. Um, she claims that the president of the United States is losing his mind, um, his cotton picking mind, Matt. Hmm. Is that what you, that's what I hear, see here written in my notes. I think that's inappropriate and you shouldn't use that phrase anymore. You need to stop baiting me. Don't use that mm-hmm. phrase anymore. Um, you know who might use that phrase? Donald Trump, according to Omarosa, who is also suggested that he is kind of sort of racist, um, that he definitely used the word nigger or nigga. We're not sure. I don't believe she's provided any context, but she said she had to bet which one it was. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to bet, it was probably nigga and he was probably listening to like mob deep or something and like singing along. That's what I would bet because Donald Trump has a lot of rapper friends, um, including Kanye West. Um, And she also said, and it's amazing to me in some ways that this isn't the thing that people are talking about in connection with the story that, Donald Trump should, quote, come clean or be honest with the American people about what he did during the campaign and what he continued to do at the White House. And that the president most definitely totally knew about the Clinton emails before WikiLeaks released them. Do you say you say corruption, but do you mean coordination? Anything that Robert Mueller would be interested in, whether Donald Trump was coordinating with Russia or he knew about the emails during the campaign, that sort of thing. I think that he should come clean with the American people. I think that he should be honest about what he did during the campaign and what he continued to do in the White House. You were instructed, according to your book, to bring up the emails at every point you could at the end of the 2016 campaign. Hillary Clinton's emails. Yes, that was our talker. Did Donald Trump know about those emails before they came out? Absolutely. He knew about them. Yes. He knew what was coming out before WikiLeaks released them. You're saying Donald Trump had a back channel. <laughs> I didn't say that. You did. But I will say that How do I am going to expose then? the corruption that went on in the campaign. That seems like a bigger deal. It does seem like a bigger deal. Yeah. People aren't nearly as interested in that as uh, as they are, um, whether or not there is a tape of the president using the word nigger or nigga. I don't I'm not quite sure. It could also be niggardly, which I don't. I mean, that would be a bit of a, a lot of syllables now. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here. The fact is that the president has responded. Um, he has referred to her as a dog, um, He, which some people have suggested might be uh, racist, maybe sexist. Um, he's also referred to her as a lowlife. Sarah Huckabee Sanders defended the president, and it was the most bizarre defense of the president I've ever seen, essentially saying, no, 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 listen, the president is just kind of an asshole to everyone. He is an equal opportunity asshole. This has uh, absolutely nothing to do with race and everything to do uh, with the president uh, calling out someone's lack of integrity. Uh, The idea that you would only point a few of the uh, things that the president has said negative uh, about people that are minorities, the fact is the president's Um, an equal opportunity uh, person that calls things like he sees it. He always fights fire with fire, and he certainly doesn't hold back on doing that across the board. And also left open the possibility that this could have happened. 
Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every, pretty much everyone is doing that at this stage. That was it, Sarah but Huckabee safe. Sanders. Sarah Huckabee Sanders has been absolutely bulletproof in her ability to lie. And, yeah. That's what's so weird about it. Yeah. She lied about everything. Why is that the, yeah. not the one thing where you're just like, no, I'm sure there's no tape. Yeah. Because if there is, it's just one other thing she lied about. And she made a whole story out of being like, that was so weird. Also, so there are two things that reported. Yeah. Well, there are two things that I wonder about here. I mean, one is how much time are you supposed to give to someone like Amarosa who, if her claims are true, even when you listen to this, this surreptitious recording from a very secure room in the white house of her talking to the president's chief of staff and the phone call the next day that she recorded of her talking to the president who apparently didn't know she was getting fired or at least pretended as much. She wanted to stay. She wanted that job. She had been defending the Trump administration. She is, as she described in her weekend um, interview with Meet the Press, to the extent these things are true, she's complicit. She is a part of the problem. She was covering it up. She was lying. She was misrepresenting the truth. Either that or she's lying now. I don't know. How much space do you give someone like that to, to sort of talk about these things in public? And how much scrutiny do journalists owe to the the public when they're interacting with her what's amazing is that she released the john kelly tape thinking it made her look good because kelly on the tape is saying you're being fired for multiple violations i forget forget the exact words whether it was ethics or integrity or something like that but basically saying you have been so problematic in this white house that i we like and he, he literally said this is not a negotiation this is it this is the whole thing um and you know, he, he, I mean, she, I think she <coughs> kind of implied that he was threatening her in, in there by, by, I saying, didn't hear that. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but, but I think all she said to back that claim up was, um, you know, this, this would be better for you if you went quietly. Yeah. So I you mean, could, you could look back on your time at the White news. House it's, and it wouldn't be a, sh- a shame. I know what you're saying, like, or not that you've said anything, but that you're suggesting. Are you saying asking, I haven't said anything? Or asking whether or not it's 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 appropriate or worth all our time to devote all this energy to Amarosa. But it kind of is for at least a little bit because she was a top aide in the White House and she has worked with Trump for a decade and a half. And this this kind of blow up is is newsworthy. I, I thought the way um, there was an article by uh, Yashar Ali mm-hmm. in Nahav HuffPost where you just pointed out that like. I should say this is the tape I'm second most excited about behind the P tape. Ah, uh, I yes. want it. We all know the P tape is real, right? What if what if what if, what if, he, what if he says the N word on the P tape? On the P tape, it could be I, one tape. That's like world's collapse. It's actually what taped it during be the Apprentice. Or Gur on yeah. the P tape. That's the thing. Yeah, and also, well, that tape also I mean, somehow reveals that tape, same tape reveals the truth about Benghazi somehow. <laughs> it's like every conspiracy thing. But no, I thought, all of them. I thought what Yashar did, which was good and which is what journalists should do, is he just like he went through her claims about the tape and the chronology and when she heard what. And he's basically like, it doesn't make sense. Like her story of of what she heard when doesn't make sense. And she also had like a motive to lie about, which is she'd been fired and she's trying to protect her job. So Uh suddenly she's like, oh, it's because I heard the tape. And like there I don't you got to cover it. She's like a a Trump official. Oh, wait, did she say that? Because I heard the tape, she wanted to leave? No, this was Yashar sort of like putting two and two together. No, 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 no. She didn't say she, it sounded like she was telling everyone that she heard the tape as an implicit threat that she could like blow the lid off it. During the campaign, essentially. Well, no, this was, well, she got fired. But some of the phone calls about the tape though were during the campaign. Yes, because she had previously. Which, I mean, by the end of the campaign, she's giving these, like that interview on Frontline where she talks about everyone having to bow down to President Trump. It's like, 
are you cra- like yeah. really like, seriously? I mean the uh, the it it it's almost tautological, but you know like the Trump's tweet saying I I helped this low life by doing her <laughs> job, and then the low life acted like a treacherous bastard, and I had to fire her. So sad. Uh, it you know it. it this you shouldn't hire. There shouldn't be people like this on the payroll. <laughs> we shouldn't. You mean act. the president of the United States? Yeah, uh, I do. <laughs> I totally do. Uh, I mean, they're kind but of also they kind uh, of have the same credentials, except for the fact that he's made a bunch of money and has like a plane and a helicopter and several wives. I mean, from what I understand, she's. I mean, I was thinking about this today. I've never watched a single episode of reality television from from beginning to end. Also guilty of it's that. It's been 20 years now, yeah. right? That this thing is like taking, I've even been in a reality TV show and yet I still haven't watched that from, we've, we've covered this certainly. I mean, it's today, as we're talking right now, it's Ben Affleck's 46th birthday. So poor uh, Sam Adams out here on the, <laughs> nice. on the ground. God rest his soul. Uh, so he's going through some tough times. Um, but uh, no, I went on, Obviously, the pilot episode of Celebrity Lookalike, uh, because I was in the top 12 finalists, is uh, Ben Affleck Lookalike. I mean, come on. Who do you think you're talking to here? Is that a true story? I'm not at all making that up. When, uh, when, when was this? Well, why are you looking for that? <laughs> <laughs> no, Matt, are you, wow. is this a joke or is this real? I don't, I don't know. Never heard this? About this is not a story that I've heard, and it's definitely not a story that's been on the show. Okay. In 2003, uh, I, I get an email. And this is in the early days of blogs, like uh, the, the, not the non-tech blogs, political blogs, of which I was uh, definitely a part of. So back then, before there was the goddamn Facebook. Look, here's what, here's uh, what Ben Affleck looked in 2003. Right. So it, you can see. You do it side by side. If you, uh, no, it's, the take, jaw, take, it's the jawline. Take 15 do years it. off of Matt's face, too. Do yeah. an image, a Google image search of uh, Ben Affleck, Matt Welch. You'll see some uh, material out there huh. uh, discussing this. So. Back then, I had a, a reasonably popular blog, and there wasn't, you know, goddamn Facebook and all these other things and Twitters and things. Uh, and so um, blogs were so hysterically over-indexed in Google. You could Google search the name Matt, and I was like the sixth thing that would come up uh, for a hot minute there. And then it all, like, <laughs> it fell apart uh, for very good reasons. Um, and there was a site called blogcritics.com uh, where just a bunch of early bloggers sort of got together. And I think it still is, is a going concern to write about music and such and one of the women who did it made some joke like aha matt welch he's he's our ben affleck in the blogosphere which is a word that people a lot of bad words there and i'm responsible for at least one of them Mm. um and so because of that um and because my name would come up uh presumably like 73rd on a google search of Ben Affleck and lookalike back in 2003 I was contacted by a talent scout uh from trying to put together this uh uh, 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 reality show called Celebrity Lookalikes uh, because uh, they, they heard that I looked like Ben Affleck and I was like um, I really no, that wasn't that picture is from 93 or 4 I was, wait a minute <laughs> but Matt I, here's what I don't understand yeah, yeah, yeah. you're saying your commenters said that you look like Ben Affleck someone in a different or you wrote that on your blog I mean, I wasn't posing necessarily as someone else saying, look at that. Oh, it was the hackers. Handsome. The hackers who the wrote hackers. that on your blog. <laughs> one, one person made a joke, and that was enough to get me indexed on Google and enough yeah. to get me called by someone. And I'm like, dude, I look seriously more like Matt Damon yeah. on a bad day than Ben Affleck on That's a good fun. day. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and she's like, no, no, you really need to come down. And so I spent like two days filming yeah. on the uh, CBS lot, uh, the Celebrity lookalike contest, and I'm like, well, I'm, and everyone there obviously is is an actor. Well, 
uh, except me. Yeah. I had to do ad libbing on the spot. And I, I, I and went the show in. was canceled is what you're saying. It aired. It aired. It aired. I, am, I am on the, the it, I think it was like 96 out of 103 shows that week. The pilot aired. It bombed. It didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but the, it was it was Ben Affleck's and the Jennifer, not Jennifer Garner's, but the uh, uh, J-Lo because uh, they were a, a thing back then. Yeah. Right. Uh, so they it was them, too. And then maybe a, a couple of other uh, uh, characters. And I'm on it for a second there and I had to they're like what would you do if J-Lo caught you uh you know blowing three million dollars in Vegas again and I'm like I I'm not here to do ad-libbing this is not gonna got that show canceled this is not (laughs) wait so the talent the talent scout yeah this was their job professionally you'd think they they google Ben Affleck yeah look alike look alike they see that someone on the internet says you look like Ben Affleck saw a picture of me and that and they say, and I'm like dude I'm like I'm a yeah. ginger uh I don't I'm not handsome in any uh, don't say meaningful I, I, meaningful I, way <laughs> uh, I mean you know you, I'm not I'm not maybe tur- a six I'm not turning heads on a beach with my dragon tattoo is what I'm saying um no but I went but I went you, through I got paid like but uh, your like, tramp stamp is definitely turned seven and, and it was called the celebrity lookalike show yeah Good luck. It I mean, it's it's called the Google it right now. I, I will say this, Matt. When I Googled Matt Welch and Ben Affleck, okay. it, there is a link to your website that comes up first on Google. But when I click the link in Google oh, yeah. Chrome's browser, Archive.org, um, I see uh, warning. Visiting this website may harm your computer. Yeah, it's and, been my uh, website's been malwared for four years. Uh, yeah. You can get it on Archive.org. I mean, you should do something about that, Matt. I should. It's like a warning. This guy does not look like Ben Affleck. Don't Jeez. don't go any further. Jeez. Well, d- let's return quickly to this no, thing, and we won't we won't spend much time. more time talking about Amoroso. But I will. I mean, there's one other question that I do definitely want to ask about this. Actually, two with respect to the dog um, low life claims that emanated from the Trumpster via Twitter. Is it your perspective, gentlemen, that this is sexism, racism, or both? And a latter question is, when do you expect the other shoe to drop? Because I did see, Matt, that you tweeted some article that our friend Penn Gillette was actually quoted in, wherein Penn actually says, in answer to a question from a journalist, are you saying that there are tapes of Donald Trump saying the thing? And in the, <laughs> in the transcript of the interview, it sounds like he's saying, yeah, hell yeah, there are tapes. But then he goes on to give some qualifying statement about how he is not a trustworthy witness or something like that. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like there really might actually be a tape, maybe possibly. I think there's flop sweat on Trump and definitely on Sarah Huckabee Sanders about the existence, not of some tape that Omarosa might have, but that Mark Burnett or some some celebrity apprentice tape exists out there. Yeah, um, it's striking to me. And there's a lot of chatter uh, about about this in the political uh, sphere of like, you know, come on, if there was a tape and he said that, who cares? We know this about him, um, you know, uh, uh, it, and uh, it can't it's not going to change a lot of people's minds. And and I get that. And I also think, that, you know, there's this this uh, this pent up desire for there to be the thing to finally knock him off of this pedestal. It's really going to happen this time. And I think it's it's ninety nine point eight percent bullshit, that whole thing. And it's it's a fantasy. Um, that said, I think the existence of uh, the, the broadcast of a tape, if you think about the one or two times he was ever knocked off uh, his game at all politically in the last two and a half years, the Access Hollywood tape was one th- one of those things because it existed viscerally on some level. Um, if we heard uh, Trump say that word in, on an audio file, uh, I think it might for people who don't 
pay attention to politics all day long. Um, those people might go, Ugh, I don't like to hear that from a president. And so I think that they might be worried about that. It seems to me, and it might therefore, it, it might also uh, have an effect if it were to come out. I'm I'm curious about that because it feels like that's a real debate now. Like I in my Twitter feed, there's a lot of cynics who are like, you know what? If he did say it, there'd be you know they'd make some excuse for it, and things would go on as usual. He's done so much other bad shit. I I actually think that would maybe be it if he actually did say because that's like that even in America where you can say a lot of bad stuff about a lot of groups. That word like. As long as it wasn't like him singing along to Nelly or whatever. Actually, he, wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if he was singing along to Nelly. That would be sufficient. Would it, I mean, would people, it, get, people have been fired for less. Would the fact that it may have happened as, as much as 13 or 14 years ago, would that be something that could rise to his defense? I don't. Don't think so. I just like the idea that uh, hypothetically he said it 13 years ago, but since then, never you know, he never, read never, the never. autobiography of Malcolm X. Really, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm naive. I just think there's still a certain um, dark power to that word where like people who will overlook other stuff wouldn't, but it, but what you know, would, what remember would, the grabbing by the pussy thing. You'd think that was it. That was I, it. Can I just tell you that I'm very uncomfortable with you using the phrase when, dark power? <laughs> I just want you to know that that phrase actually has more greater negative resonance with me. I mean, it's when we say it, when we say this, is this going to knock him off the perch? What does that mean? Like, because he's not up for election for yeah, like two years. Yeah. So does, is he get impeached over this? Like, yeah. like I mean, is, is pressure to is, resign? You, I, you think I don't so? think so. Because I, I, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, I, I don't. I don't see Mike Pence saying you must resign. I, I see squirming. I see he's a different man now. He's taking more responsibility. Well, you know, there, there might be one scenario mm-hmm. if he were on tape saying. I, I hate niggers. I mean, they just they are genetically inferior. You know, one day I'm going to become president of the United States and somewhere around like 2018, 2019, I'm going to let everyone know my secret plan. I'm going to do a lot of talking about how I can help the blacks get jobs and stuff. And I'm going to befriend Kanye West. But you know what? It's all a scam. It's all a trick. I think at that point he would probably be done. But that is almost certainly the only way that fi- this finishes him. I will say this, though. There are almost certainly tapes of me saying horrible, terrible, degenerate things about supporting the Iraq war. inside the news court building somewhere in between takes of the the independent. Well, when I was watching some in other here tonight, show. the anti-Semitism was just crazy. Well, I mean, that's just for fun. OK, you know, that's, I, and it's fine. I, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, it's like there was no anti-Semitism just on the record. No, was, no, it was great. But well, the I, Jews really do run Hollywood. Um, but so, you, you, uh, Camila, someone who uh, in our first week <laughs> of the independence, thought like, it's important to do like a five minute segment on the N word saying it many, 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 <laughs> many N-word times. The N word says the says the adult man. Shut up. Uh-huh. Uh uh, does it is it another like a glowing bit of uh, of kryptonite out there that like so much of the national conversation for the last six or seven days has been about that? It's absurd. It's, um, uh, as opposed to as you were saying, like oh yeah. maybe he might have been uh, in complicity with the Russians is another yeah. thing. It's not if, really- if the president has truly is truly losing his scruples, or if she actually has tangible proof of the president collaborating with the Russian government. Those things, I mean, that's megatonnage. I am genuinely interested in that. If I thought for a moment that she were a credible witness and that there might actually be some tangible proof of the Russian collusion conspiracy nonsense coming from her, like if she was at all credible, I would be like, whoa, whoa, this is a big deal. I want to see the proof. If I see the proof, Camille's been wrong about this all along. Um, I can't say nearly the same thing about a tape that might have the guy saying 
the most dangerous word in America. Dark power. In some context that I don't know. Exactly. I feel like if Omarosa had the proof of Russian collusion, she would roll it out like LeBron James, the decision style. It'd be like a five reality show. We don't find out till the end what the proof is. Sure. Celebrity. There's no way that she has some really important piece of evidence that we haven't seen. No, no. No I mean, given the, the, the coverage of what it was like to work with Omarosa in the White House, her desk surrounded by shoes that were just, (laughs) she was collecting like some weird hoarder in the West Wing. I mean, I just can't. Yeah. We don't even have to talk about her anymore. No, I I, I, I respect game. My favorite part. My favorite part of this. They weren't off white. I'll tell you that much, Matt. The. Trump's tweets about this have been so incredible. This whole, this <laughs> dumb, idiot, jerk, incompetent person who I hired to work for. <laughs> I've only I the best that. people. I love that. And literally explicitly saying, everyone told me she sucked, but she said nice <laughs> things about me. Like, how you, how can you own someone who is so efficiently owning themselves constantly? Yeah. It's just, it's a philosophical conundrum. It's like Corey Lewandowski. I mean, just the honor roll of people who used yes. to be associated with this administration who well, are still fans. Yes. Lewandowski's still in Are still standard. fans, but he, we're fired. Yeah, well, he'd, he'd, if he was allowed to come back, he would. He would totally yeah. do it. Yeah, if Trump could bring him back. He yeah. may still yeah. try to bring him back. Anyways, let's, uh, let's get away from this and, and perhaps move on to some other things. And, and somewhat related, we're still talking about racism and stuff. Unite the Right to happened this past week. Um, and Unite the Right 2 is an extension of the first Unite the Right um, uh, uh, event that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia last year. Tragically, there were three lives lost over the course of that weekend. And last year, you had two days. And we were actually, Jesse, as, as a consequence of you sending that email, we pulled up the numbers to look. And there were some estimates that there were maybe 250 white supremacist supporters or sympathizers who were marching in that Tiki Torch rally on the Friday evening. And on the Saturday, the estimates are that there was maybe around 500 folks who were there in support of that cause. And according to the NPR story from which I'm extracting these numbers, and they are estimates provided by some third party to NPR, there was more than twice as many counter protesters at that Charlottesville thing. But what we all remember are both sort of those images of the Tiki Torch Parade and, of course, the tragic events that happened during the the sort of demonstrations that were taking place there. The follow-up event this past weekend was something that there was a tremendous amount of buildup towards. I mean, for about two weeks before that, there was national media coverage of this thing in Washington, D.C. It was pretty hard, I imagine, to escape some of the conversation around how disruptive this was going to be, where things would be happening, what people needed to do to stay safe. I'm not sure if there were any guidelines provided to people about how much water they should keep on hand. State of emergency was declared. Is that right? In in two states. That's amazing because it turned out that according to estimates, there were between 20 and 40 people who came out in support of the white supremacist, although it appears there were thousands of counter demonstrators who were there. Um, And there may be plenty of reasons for this. And I'd like to get your perspectives, gentlemen, on why things went so differently, if this in fact surprised you and broadly on what the hell this all means for our politics more broadly. Is this the end of this major narrative about the influence of white supremacy in America and in our politics, or is this, as has been suggested by some commentators, evidence in some way, shape or form, along with perhaps other things that the white nationalists are, in fact, winning? I think there's two uh, two bits of that. I think it's 
um, the alt-right as an organized uh, thing and um, Anthony will, uh, might disagree or whatever um, is just broken. There's just there's, there's nothing there. And I think it was broken by Charlottesville after Heather Heyer got uh, uh, rolled over and killed. It was kind of over all the infighting between those groups is just epic and and pathetic. I actually <laughs> totally agree. And and people that were alt-right adjacent who never fully wore the label but were certainly sympathetic all want to pretend that that never happened. They but, but most of them had pulled out. Of, this is the thing, though. A lot of them, I won't say most because I, I can't quantify it, but a lot of them had pulled out before that event yeah. even happened. Yes, right. Yeah. And which, then, is, which is worth keeping in mind because I don't even know that the event broke them in so much as to the extent they were a thing they could they get, were never they quite could get the thing 200 people imagine they could get 220 people after organizing for months and months that, and months from around the world from around yeah, the world weird. to go to this thing and now and we had jacob siegel uh very soon afterwards and, yes and i encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode just because of his voice is really incredible <laughs> i think uh, we had him and fisher uh, in the room a yeah, couple of times. so much baritone so weird uh but uh he pointed out that there were two uh, uh, rallies bracketing that in Boston. There were oh, yeah. free speech rallies, and I used some air quotes there, um, uh, <coughs> before and after. And the before one had a, a decent size and a scattering of, of counter protesters. The after ones had 25 people, a trillion cops. No one could see a protester, and the counter protesters were in the, like the thousands. And that is now the template. If there's any whiff that there's an alt right anywhere, um, it's going to be cops, media, counter protesters. And 25 really, really sad dudes with their man boobs and their khakis. I, I do think, like, in retrospect, um, obviously what we remember from the weekend last year is um, someone got killed, which is horrible. But mm-hmm. but whatever the estimate was, 220 people, that much organizing, that many celebrities with huge social media followings. Like, I, I think the way the media coverage that did covered that did them a favor. We had all these scary people, no these people with torches, like— I, I know this is an unpopular thing to say, at least in, in my quarters, but like that's not a lot of people for that much planning, that much social media play. It was exactly what they wanted is like pictures of scary goons marching with torches. And it's just it is a it is not a popular movement. They have no base of support. You can actually find numerous videos <gasps> of Richard Spencer talking to large gaggles of press and saying to them directly like in an empty auditorium. This is a success for me. And this is a success because I have an opportunity to talk to all of you. This guy has never been as influential as has been suggested in many circles. That's not to say he wasn't influential at all. And that doesn't downgrade the the repugnance of his sentiments. But America was never as gone as some people suspect. Although, to hear some people explain it, the the white nationalists have won, and I and when I say that, I'm referring to is it Adam Serwer, Adam Serwer at, the at the Atlantic, Atlantic who wrote this piece. Jacob Siegel also uh, in a, in a, a, I think a, a very good piece for Tablet gets into this too. He's, well, the contrast in different ways though, because I think Adam's piece is a lot more. There's a lot more bombast in yes, this piece for sure. But like, but if you strip out the uh, the the adjectives from it. The critique is, yes, the alt-right is dead. However, mm-hmm. um, this thing, and, and Adam Serwer calls it white nationalism, and maybe uh, Jacob does too. Yeah, he, he also might. uses the phrase genetic determinism, which I'm like, right. who, who in the conservative movement supports um, that? You might call it, you know, aggressive uh, othering of disfavored populations or something like that. I don't know exactly what you would say, um, but there, 
is a thing. Um, and so it, the argument is that thing exists in this current government, exists in our politics in a way that is uh, much more apparent than it was two years ago and three years ago. Um, it's unclear what the rise and fall of the alt-right precisely has to do with that. It's probably more clear with the kind of, um, you know, 10 years at least worth of uh, specifically anti-immigration politics in the Republican Party uh, has had to do with that. Um, but I think the hard question is, what do you call that? I have a, a problem with calling that, identifying that as white nationalism, mm -hmm. because I think it's important when you're trying to just define things of getting into the motivations, the what do people consider themselves as they're doing X? Uh, I think there's a lot of um, tendency uh, among political and social critics to go with, well, you know, the effect of what they do is white nationalism or racism or whatever ism. Um, and so therefore, that's what we're going to call this. Um, I think that that leads to a disconnect. I don't think that a lot of people who support restrictive uh, immigration policies, legal immigration policies who talk about like Laura Ingram did on Fox uh, News, who talk about, mm. you know, we didn't vote for these demographic changes and this is a big problem in our America. These people can't assimilate. Uh, right. They take up too much of our welfare. They're too criminal. All these things which are not true. It's important to point out that they're not true. Almost any of those critiques that they make. Um, so uh, what do we exactly call that? I don't think that all of those people or a majority of those people, although there's no way of knowing, wake up in the morning and think, God damn it, I need to protect my whiteness. And I think that they're treated off in the media is that that is their motivational thing. I think that there needs to be a way to think about where they're coming from and why they're saying what they're saying and what to do it. I don't think that white nationalism is the word to describe that. But Jesse might have a different idea. Jesse? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> he's calling you out. <laughs> uh, freestyle battle? <laughs> exactly. no, I, I, I actually weirdly want, can you drop want, want, be, that want one, to know what you, he looks at what, me and says yeah, that was, <laughs> completely that was unacceptable. I, I do want to say quickly, the reason I'm always making the that's racist jokes is not just because I'm a one trick pony and I mostly am, but it's also because I'm demonstrating the degree to which virtually anything can be construed as slightly racist. Virtually anything. The subjectivity of racism is something that it's difficult to overstate. Um, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to overstate. Anyways, I'm sorry, Jesse. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess I think it's true that it's hard to look in someone's head and know their motivations. And there are a lot of people who have what I would view as somewhat bigoted views that don't identify as white nationalists. To me, what it comes down to is like, I don't want Granted, we're going to have a liberal party and a conservative party in this country, approximately liberal, approximately conservative. I don't want it to be the case that a conservative president would have people like Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller in his cabinet. I think they have like uh, – I know Bannon's gone, but they have like really far-right views on a lot of this stuff. And Jeff Sessions is still there. Sessions, right. Sessions is still there. These guys just like they, – they, they spread lies about genuinely marginalized groups. They – the fears they spread about migration, about Muslims. I mean, this was a president who said he wanted to literally ban Muslims from entering the country. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. You have no choice. 
So until we can interview the 1.2 billion Muslims and figure out what they're about. Whatever it takes to matter. Ta- so, yeah, in other words, I think online there's obviously there are social incentives to call people Nazis or white nationalists or whatever. And I I think there's a risk of getting too hung up and like, oh, are they really a white nationalist? Do they really want a white ethno state versus just like what do we want the range of acceptable opinions in our politics to be? And to me, Bannon, Miller, and Sessions all fall way outside what I think a conservative politics should look like. So, so there's two things. I'm sure you read um, Jacob's piece as well. Like one of the things is this notion of white nationalist ideological goals remaining a core part of the Trump agenda, which is a direct quote from Adam from his Atlantic piece. But in Jacob's piece, it wasn't so much just the supremacy. It was the notion of white identitarian mm-hmm. ideas becoming some somewhat normal currency in American politics. And frankly, I suppose it's possible that that could happen. It's not obvious to me that that has happened. Anyone who even even seems to intimate that they might be interested in suggesting that whites are a group that should be appealed to explicitly for political reasons to defend their interests is still regarded as a racist in this country. I mean, am I, am I wrong about that Fisher? Or? I mean, if, if you, if you actually say white interests, probably. Yeah. But, um, usually it's, it, I don't even want to use the word coded, but usually it's presented in different, you know, uh, uh, terms like uh, it'll, it'll be like the heartland or the real America or the working class people, suburban or, moms. There you go. You know, um, it, it goes on and on. So Although we, we we have to presume that that's the secret meaning behind. Yeah, and it's too broad. It's too broad to to really. I mean, I, I do think that there is. Here's the thing that I find different about the concerns about the white identitarianism in the United States as opposed to the baked into the cake racism that this country has always suffered from. And that it's not so much like a clan thing and it's not so much a, you know, make the, you know, the South roll rise again. It's it's this stuff that's much more common in Europe, uh, you know, when, with, with like the National Front and stuff like that, where, where they talk about like, you know, nationalism as identity. Sure. And you, you, in the United States, I'm hearing things only in the last couple of years that I never heard about before, where it's, it's not about whiteness, it's about Western civilization. Well, well, and only we... But I think been, we've been hearing that for a while. I agree with you that we hear more of that, like open Western chauvinism. I mean, Gavin McInnes's group, uh, that's it's a fraternal organization to promote the ideas and defend the ideas of Western chauvinism. The Proud Boys. Proud Boys. Who um, have all been excommunicated from Twitter. Like um, our whole... Yeah, our every, every Proud Boy. It's, it's, more, every, it's, it's specifically every, that... Every it, official Proud Boy they, account, it's... it's but I think, I think we have seen, uh, if you go back in the pages of National Review over the last 25 years, kind of the anti-multiculturalism thing, the anti-Balkanization, which used, used to be a word that was used, um, has talked about, we need to defend Western civilization. We need this, uh, this concept of, of, of uh, uh, embracing a Western uh, chauvinism. Donald Trump's first major foreign policy speech was in Krakow, I believe, of May of, of 2017. He embraced a lot of these kind of uh, broad issues and some of the language uh, he wasn't talking like a proud boy, but he was he was talking in terms of like we <laughs> he need, wasn't even that sophisticated. Um, we need to. You know, it was actually a, a decently written speech. And I think Steve Miller has, has, has uh, fingerprints on it. It's one of his better moments. Um, that's grading with an incredible curve. Uh, but uh, there's this concept of like a renewed American nationalism, mm-hmm. American firstness. But that, I think that's been in. Uh, planet conservatism. Yeah, but per- perhaps for a like, while. It's, it's right? really it, like the, the fact that 
you know, Trump has actually gone too far for even some of his identitarian uh, allies. When he re- when he do you remember around Christmas time, he retweeted a Britain first uh, tweet where, where they, you know, Britain first is notorious for sharing, you know, your, your racist uncle shares Britain first uh, memes and, and videos where they take videos totally out of context and or or things that or describe things happening in the video that are not happening. Like if there's a brown person beating up a white person in a park, it's a Somali migrant beating up a Danish kid. And these are just not the things that they're, sh- that they're not happening. So Trump retweeted, I think a couple of these things. He did. And, yeah. and, and he, some people like, I think Paul Joseph Watson even said, if you're going to make this point, don't use Britain first. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't bothered by the point, but he knew the sourcing was bad. Well, I mean, the, the president has, I think, demonstrated a capacity to, to not be, to not be particularly deaf when uh, dealing with most things. But it's, that's more than Crass, just not crassness. particularly but, but even, deaf even if that, crassness. Even if that video well, is true, well, let's, let's that's get just out of that video. Like, I, don't, I, I don't know if it's more than or not more than particular deft or craftness. He's I mean, serially exaggerated the criminality that much, of that much Muslims, is true. He does that all the time. But, Absolutely. But, refugees, and it's affected policy. He does but it all I, the time. I think I'm a little skeptical. Like six years ago, I wrote about this, um, about six years ago. Do you remember uh-huh. the, the knockout game? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was the same thing. They would refresh take, it for me. The knockout game is where supposedly there were bands of black kids running around punching usually white people for no reason. There was very little evidence that there was a thing called the the knockout game that actually existed, except in like very isolated cases. Well, yeah, I mean there were some reports of this. It was sure. a question as to how widespread. There were probably more people eating was. tide pools. Yeah, Almost yeah. Tide pools. The bath yeah. Well, and in fact, what you said of, of misrepresenting a video, there was a video of of a, a mentally ill man in I think London punching someone. That got recast as like, he's a black teenager playing the knockout. It was the same hysteria. And it was the same preying on certain white fears. And then before that, around the Iraq war, we have this idea of Islamofascism, where you have the West, we have to defend the West, and there's Islamofascism. There's all these Muslim countries that, in fact, have totally different ideologies that are actually the Mm -hmm. same. And to me, like, all this stuff is redolent of the same sort of us versus them I just I'm not sure it's changed that much. Like maybe Trump is a little bit more open about it, but it's not like I guess I'm agreeing with you guys. It's not like it's that new to American conservatism. Maybe just like the volume is a little bit higher. I think the volume is is higher and and the effects are more uh, tangible. I mean, Islamofascism is kind of a Christopher Hitchens uh, coinage. Uh, Part of this was. Uh, let's identify that what's happening with Islam right now includes a sense of totalitarianism within it and, and the radical edges, and which I think is a, is is in Elementary, itself yeah. accurate. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of uh, uh, the phrase and, and uh, wasn't at the time. Um, but I, you know, th- that wasn't necessarily um, galvanized. I mean, yeah, okay. It was galvanized into into war policy. It wasn't the thing that it wasn't George W. Bush's uh, rhetoric. It was the rhetoric of people who were. No, his rhetoric was the op. I mean, he did obviously. He was a disaster, but he literally said the problem is in Islam. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is. And Trump would have said the, the problem. The people is who were using the word Islamofascism were pissed off at Bush for always like going to mosques and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, David Horowitz and stuff. Uh, but so uh, the the Trump thing is different in in the sense that he's kind of leading. Uh, this he uh, Camille's right. He's not particularly non-crass and all this kind of stuff. But he, he, I think he hits these things over and over again. And then you have the actual policy. We just don't accept refugees. Um, we it's the lowest number of of intake that we've had in the modern era at a time when refugees 
the population in the world has doubled in five years. Yeah, Monday it's, of this week, we had some new developments there as well. What was the new uh, Well, Jeff Sessions, um, I believe, reversed an Obama uh, Obama administration precedent, which had sort of broadened the category of things to include domestic violence. So if a right. woman came and was seeking asylum and she said, hey, my husband is beating this hell out of me. I left. I'm here. I'd like to come in and stay. No longer grounds. Um, and broadly speaking, they had already made it pretty clear that they didn't see being potentially a victim of like drug gangs or something like that as sufficient criteria. And a couple of a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, there was a reporting on some draft stuff that Steve Miller was doing. Take that with whatever grains of salt because it's draft. But uh, that uh, there was going to be an effort to. Um, take back uh, privileges from immigrants who came here and used welfare. I mean, there's just it's it's whenever you hear a Republican talk about we need to drug test welfare recipients and they're not talking about fucking owners of the New York Yankees, then then you cannot tell me (laughs) that there isn't like a gross class based and and like disfavored population based uh, attitude going in there. And and I think it's still an it's still an assumption and an assertion there. And I and And it's one that I believe and I'm making that assumption. I hear you. You're allowed to have that belief. There are two things that I that I would want I, I want to throw out there for you all to consider. And I'll mention the first briefly, and we don't necessarily have to adjudicate it. I already know everyone disagrees with me, but I still think, and I thought it again watching this thing play out um, as we were sort of doing this anniversary of this stuff in Charlottesville, the fact that Trump's entire post-Charlottesville speech like all the various things he say are reduced from however many hundreds of words there are to on many sides. Like the fact that the lead up to that was we condemn in the strongest possible terms, the egregious display of hatred, bigotry and violence. Um, And that he concludes the same speech above all else. We must remember this truth, no matter our color, creed, religion or political party, we are all Americans first. Like those are the dominant themes of the speech he gave and the redacted version of our history, the thing that has calcified because it is consistent with the narrative about Donald Trump's super racist is that. And I I don't know that I don't see something. This is this is the this is the further bridge. So now you'll have two things that you can completely slam me for. I don't know that there isn't something similar taking place with what. it's weird. I don't want to conflate these, but I'm going to do it anyways. When I've seen a lot of the takes on Laura Ingram's comments, like there is a tendency to pull out the place where she mentions demographics. And I've seen in a couple of places, including Van Jones on CNN, who likened her comments to indistinguishable, no difference between what she said and um, what the Nazis were saying. In some parts of the country, it does seem like the America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. And they're changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. From Virginia to California, we see stark examples of how radically, in some ways, the country has changed. Now, much of this is related to both illegal and in some cases, legal immigration that, of course, progressives love. So Laura Ingram tried to backtrack in a way overnight, saying it was about uh, the border. She didn't say a word. No, listen, I, I, I know her. I have mm-hmm. thought well of her in the past. That was racial. 
She, listen, if she wants to talk about the border, she wants to talk about security, if she wants to talk about terrorism, she wants to talk about any of those things, she's welcome to do that. She did not mention any of that stuff. In that thing, she talked about demographic mm -hmm. change, period. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're smart, if you're good, if you're law-abiding, whatever. The demographics, the racial demographics are the issue. There's no other explanation for the word demographic. And so that does not sound like anything but white nationalism. And I, listen, I don't like coming out here and saying that kind of stuff because it's, it's a, I always look for a better explanation if I can find it. And you know I do. There is no other explanation for her, her, her uh, comments than she's talking about the changing racial makeup. Now, listen, conservatives always tell me we're colorblind. We don't see color. Why do you guys always raise the <clears> issue? She raised the issue with no even pretense that there was some other dog whistle. This is uh, you're seeing now mainstream media adopting the rhetoric and the rationale of white nationalism and nobody's doing anything about it. This is, this is one of the worst things I've seen on cable television. And he said explicitly that she didn't mention anything about it not involving race. She didn't say this was about economics. She said demographics. No, actually, she said both. She said Adam Smith, she mentioned the Federalist Papers, and she said twice in those remarks that this isn't about race. And I'm, I, what that brought to mind for me was actually um, Milton Friedman, who Milton Friedman is a, a hero of my own. His perspective was that he was anti-welfare state and pro-immigration, in fact, pro-illegal immigration. And I'm remembering a quote where he talked about the fact that illegal immigration really good for America, mostly good primarily because it's illegal, which is a little bit nuanced, but went on to talk about the fact that he had concerns about the welfare state and was there seems to be a general concern amongst some people on the right who are anti-immigration, who are restrictivists, that if in fact people come from other parts of the world that don't share our values with respect to free markets and stuff, that they could come and have an impact on our politics. And it seemed to me that that was very obviously a prominent feature of what she said. She did say that other total bullshit about the criminals. She did hint at that. She Not even hint, she said it. They can be wrong about that, but it does seem to me that there is at least when sort of Milton Friedman was making the argument, when he was expressing his at least somewhat concern or trepidation that existed alongside his support for immigration, his concern that, yeah, their political values may, in fact, be incompatible with mine. They That's might not what Friedman said. I'm, I'm saying I'm sorry. I'm saying two things. One is Milton Friedman's perspective, which was that they could come in and put an additional strain on the welfare state. And that could be a bad thing. But the further argument that Laura Ingram was making, that their politics might be incongruent with mine, i.e. support for the free market, Adam Smith and the principles of the Federalist Papers, because there are a number of socialist governments in Latin America. Do we that want? They're do we? They're they're leaving. Both, and this is and this both is are, both and this is wrong. the thing Camille, because the Reaganite. The quick, let me let me cut to the quick both here. Really let me wrong. cut to the quick here and say this: that conservatives wrong. conservatives have abandoned the Reaganite impulse to try and view these people as potential conservatives and recognize that you have an opportunity to win their votes and support so that they will support your politics. Their presumption we is passed. that they cannot, in fact, persuade those people. But I'm right. just saying that there is a universe in which. 
That is not, in fact, motivated by race. And what bothers me is the degree to which we don't actually pay attention to the rest of the stuff that's there. We pretend or presume that it's all window dressing meant to obscure their true meaning and don't deal with the best version of the argument that's on offer. Instead, there is no they're racist. Okay, so. The Milton Friedman uh, quote, which is the biggest like misused out of context quote I can think of in the I didn't just misuse it. You didn't. You didn't. In fact, you pointed out how it's misused. I did. The kind of insight based on that quote was enacted into law in 1990 fucking six. We've Mm -hmm. had 22 years of decoupling welfare from immigration. That is the point. The welfare in air quotes that illegal immigrants and legal immigrants get in this country are as follows. You go to the emergency room when you're bleeding out, they're going to take you in. Your kid who's here gets to go to school. We've pretty much exhausted the amount of welfare that you're getting. Every single study, there isn't any, I don't think even the Center for Immigration Studies, which we shouldn't take them on good faith. They don't have good faith arguments. Their arguments are bad faith, bad stats, bad people all the way down, right? Their arguments, I don't think they, even they can come up with that illegal immigrants are net drags on the welfare state because they're not. They're just fucking not, nor are immigrants Overall. So, yes, let's take them at their word and say, which we've been saying again and again and again and again and again since 1996. Yes, your Milton Friedman quote, your concern about welfare, it's unfounded. It is unfounded. That is not why people are coming here. And on net, they are not taking they're taking less from the welfare state than Native American white people or whatever people just people who are born in America are. And this has been true forever. Every study shows this. Right. And the second part of uh, of the yes, they're concerned about, you know, not going to share Adam Smith's culture. This has been a trope with every single wave of immigration. The Central Europeans are not going to share our culture. The Italians, the Irish. This shows a lack of faith in our assimilation machine, which has been the most wonderful in the history of mankind. Uh-huh. Um, it uh, And it essentializes in a way that I think that is ugly. And there is a flip side that the Democrats do, too, when they're talking about, you know, Texas is going to be inevitably Democratic because there's enough Hispanics there. I think that's essentializing voter behavior based on where you're coming from. And that's wrong. Mm-hmm. But the argument that this is going to be bad for the country because these people are going to come in and they're going to vote Democrat. Like, fuck you. I'm sorry. That's not an argument. That's not actually... People who come to America get American values. It, we, we have yet to find the place uh-huh. that is so terrible and foul uh-huh. that their immigrants didn't come here and just become American. I didn't so say those arguments. The best version of those arguments is they are shitty arguments. They, let them be shitty arguments, Matt. There is a distance between them being shitty arguments and them just being racist canards. And that is Why the point that I was making. Why would you shitty argument for 20 years? Because they still believe it. People are still advocating for socialism. I think that's a shitty argument, too. There are lots of people who support and believe in that crap. But because it's not only about facts. And I will say this as well, because I'd be remiss if I didn't. And I've yet to look at the studies. There was a listener last week who sent a very long, thoughtfully worded email referring specifically to some work by an economist at Harvard and another. I can um, bet that his name without having read it is George Borjas. George Mason. And it's all about. suggested both of them have done stuff. I am unfamiliar with their work. I'm totally. You can speak to that. That would be great because he had some thoughts on it. 
There's one economist out there who studied the issue closely on uh, what are the effects on low income workers in America, native born workers on immigration. And yeah. one says that there's a net negative on it. Other people say there's a net positive. I think there's gray area depending on how you measure it. Um, that is about if you look in the universe and, I, you know, I, I hate to say that there's consensus because there isn't. But in the universe of studies that people have given respect towards the one study that says, hey, maybe there's a net uh, negative uh, impact on immigration comes from George Borjas, Harvard, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and it's there. And there's a lot of discussion about it, the refutation of it, um, uh, different thoughts. In any case, uh, I think it's it's uh, concentrated on the uh, the wages of low income, uh, uh, non degree holding Americans. Totally worth engaging. Go look at it. And and, and that's all I mean, brother. That's all I mean. That no, we but that, but engage with that sort of best with argument. George Borjas is one thing. Yeah. Taking even as a serious argument that uh, immigrants are a welfare suck. That's not a serious argument. That's not. You can quote. You can put a Milton Friedman quote on it, justifying <laughs> it. But that well, by making that argument, you are saying I am impervious to data. Yeah, but what we've I just, am motivated by something else, and I'm not naming that something else. What we've just well, again, I don't know that socialists are motivated by something else. I think to the extent I disagree with them, and I think they're wrong and don't have great evidence to support their position. I think they're motivated by whatever the hell motivates sure. them to believe in socialism. And if someone is afraid of immigration, they could be motivated by plenty of things. But what you've demonstrated at a minimum is that we can have a conversation where we engage with even that bad argument that doesn't presume the malevolent intent, which is the only thing that I'm saying here, that there is some broader thing. But no, Jesse, I, I'm talking. No, 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 it's fine. I just, please. but why, if you want to engage with like actual thinker, there, sure. there's such a thing as a good faith argument against like unfettered immigration. Uh -huh. but, but Laura Ingram literally said like demographic change. She did. On us. That's she, not she also, she also literally said, I'm not talking about race. And she mentioned the ad, mentioned Adam Smith and the Federalist. And I know that when this was re-aired over and over again, that they simply ignored that addition, those parameters. And I'm sensitive to this shit. I'm yeah. sensitive to it because I'm still smarting from the fucking thing is, that happened to what, me what is two weeks ago. But what is demographic? Change? Yeah, what is demographic? What is I, I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that I want to ask her. Maybe she used the word improperly. Maybe mean, she didn't mean it. Well, no, but maybe it, she maybe she only meant but it has in a reference specific... to sort of national national origins and the fact that. In coming from places that have predominantly historically supported certain kinds of governments, people might be more likely to come here and support that kind of government here at a minimum. So there's e no evidence. Even if there's no evidence for it, I want to say there's no evidence for it and have that conversation versus dismissing her as a Nazi and pretending that what's happened here is the white nationalist ideology has seeped into the Republican Party. Let's address the best version of the argument and presume that people aren't hideous monsters. Well, but but if she the term demographic, I'm not saying she's a Nazi, but the term demographic change has a very specific meaning for people who are worried about immigration. In this particular case, she said it's not about race. And she went on the next day to okay, say so it's about, sort of, it's there was about a national vehement, origin. Well, there was but, a vehement argument. There was a vehement argument against um, against like white supremacists who were trying to glom on to her comments and take support for them. I'm just saying I, it's I just I'm, I'm trying to imagine the yeah, best yeah. case argument for what demographics means yeah. in a positive way. 
I'm I'm hear you. I hear you. No, I mean the, 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 no, I'm, the, I'm with you. The, the only the only defense that I could one. the only defense that I could come to is that she didn't mean demographics in that particular. Well, but context. then you're not she responding to her actual argument. Well, I'm trying to respond to her actual argument by right. taking it into context. If you say you don't mean race, well, what do you mean by demographics? Is the appropriate question? I think, and I'm not sure. I think is one the appropriate one, answer. Well, I and I don't know, and I don't presume to know. Um, and the but is um, if. You, uh, saying this isn't about race also could have the meaning of I don't want to be called a racist, but right. Could be. It, that could be a potential could, meaning. Could very well. well be it. Uh, because that's a terrible thing to but be called. The Nazis it, never did that sort of qualifying for, for what it's worth. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Did they do that quite in qualifying? This is not here. We can't. Uh, we can't. Adjudicate, that's true. Uh, what, what Nazis did. We would be able to, def- to definitively adjudicate the matter at that point. Just I'm sorry. It. I'm doing so much damn talking. I'm, yeah. I'm dominating this whole thing. Ball hogging. We'll just cut all of my talking out. Um, we should we should probably punch out of here pretty soon. Um, I want to point out, by the way, so we had you won't notice this in the editing because it was very sweet, sweetly done. But I was uh, I was a little bit panicked earlier uh, (laughs) during the podcast because I had received a text uh, from my wife um, saying and she won't mind that I mentioned this. She's a big, big fan of the show, um, engaged a lot of sacrifices to make sure this happens. That's true. Uh, And uh, so. uh, it's it, it says, oh, no, with a bunch of exclamation points, right? So, and this is like at 830 on, on a school night. And like, and, you know, I stopped the podcast, went and like called, FaceTimed, uh, texted, get down to the bottom of it. And uh, my 10-year-old has confessed. My 10-year-old took the phone and sent me an oh, no response to whatever text uh, screen uh, was to try to like just get some Get some controversy there. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, she apparently is uh, is very sorry and wants to apologize to the Fifth Column podcast <laughs> for disrupting <laughs> what, what we did. Well, if it's any consolation, we got to wipe up Camille's beer during that time. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We took care of some. We, aer- we aerated the room. Yeah. 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 Which is, we needed to cool off a little bit after and that it was a first good, opening. It was uh, a good segue, yeah. Can I ask, uh, Jesse, what, what's your book about? Is this more uh, trans, more cutting? <laughs> So I should probably say cutting is not the preferred term. Uh, It is top surgery is usually what's used. Um, So my book's about sort of. I'm going to cut that. Oh, no. no, I have to. I have to protect you from yourself, Matt. Absolutely not. You've proven that. Don't start with me. I'm not saying anything else except you've proven that. All right. Go on, Jesse. Yeah, the book is about sort of. um, It's basically about social psychology. Social psychologists keep coming up with these ideas that they give TED Talks about, like, this new idea I came up with is going to fix racism or fix the income gap or fix education over and over. These ideas, like everyone gets really excited about them, but there's very little to them. Sometimes there's nothing there at all. So the book is sort of questioning why we keep thinking psychologists are going to save us, why these ideas go viral, what it sort of says about um, part of the argument is like our politics are so dysfunctional and we sort of given up on like actually solving problems. So we're turning to these sort of Ted talk gurus to solve problems for us. Oh, that's that's the, interesting. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I mean the, uh, what's the name of the dude that, uh, Moynihan, uh, ruined his career, uh, Joan Joan Allaire. Allaire. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but like, it, it seems to me that's kind of a part of the, <laughs> sorry, Michael, Moyn- you're Moynihan, not going to show up. If uh, you'd said that while he was here, he would wince. He would totally wince. He, he, he does. He doesn't feel good about that. Yeah. Um, uh, but like, it seems to me kind of the, of the broader, uh, uh, like discussion, like Malcolm Gladwell, even if you're going that far, yep. like here's the shiny, like person who says the thing in this crystal way. And right. It's gonna study change. shows that like, here's how you can new study. Become, yeah. New study proves it. And so part of your thesis is, they always is, do. is that the, uh, 
is that it's hand in hand with the political dysfunction. Because we're so dysfunctional, we want the shiny. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously like that's a tough thing to prove or falsify. But I think if it if people had a little bit of faith in either civic institutions, which they no longer believe in or belong to or in the political system, it would be harder for like for these ideas to catch on and go viral the way they do. I I just think it says the culture is the quality of the science crap. Often, often, yeah. I mean, they they vary. There's some of these ideas where there's like a, a grain of truth to them, but what a lot of these researchers do is they'll they'll publish three studies. People get excited about it. They'll give a TED talk, and then suddenly they'll wildly overclaim in the TED talk or in media interviews. And then there's a mm. book about it, and it's just none of it actually matches what was found in the study. It's always wild over extrapolation. Well, the studies nearly always have some sort of qualifications in the conclusion, and they will give you some guidance about the various ways that you ought not interpret this. But there is both the replication crisis in academic research and questions about the the quality of the studies and the, the studies that actually end up getting done, let alone published. And then to compound those issues, there is just the miserable low standard of quality when it comes to journalism around academic research. Like they will publish the glossy headline, oh my God, this magic bean will make you lose weight. Five out of 10 people who drink coffee live forever. And it's total bullshit. And it is just not substantiated by the studies, which either have a sample size of five people um, or some other nonsense in the study design that the journalist is either too dim or too lazy to bother to bother um, unpacking. And I have seen this sort of shabby ass science journalism in every single publication I read from the wall street journal to the New York times, to the Atlantic, like every single one of them has had people who are fucking guilty of this shabby ass bullshit. It's really, really bad. Except for the, the weight loss magic bean is real. Actually. No, that's yeah. totally a real thing. And I've been using it and it's, look, the I can tell you look great. Yeah. Gain some weight. Yep. Actually, it's not working anymore. Um, but but relatedly, um, the the sort of last thing that we were um, talking about in the email was this um, this campaign that has been launched recently by uh, the Boston Globe, which somewhere around two hundred different newspapers have signed on to, um, and it is a campaign to fight back against the tre- the president's war on journalism, which I feel conflicted about this personally, because I think it is a stupid and bad thing for the president to be decrying the media as the enemy of the people. It's ugly and dumb as hell. Um, at the same time, um, uh, Jack Schaefer's piece at Politico, which I didn't send around earlier, but um, I mean, I mention it here and folks can go back and read it if they're interested, um, echoes a lot of my own sentiments about this, that it really does seem to kind of play into the president's hands for all of these mainstream publications to get together on the same day, go after the president and fight him, the constant protestations that we aren't the enemy of the people. We're not, we're not those guys. Stop saying that. There, uh, there was, a uh, the editorial. So we're doing this on a Wednesday night. I'm pretty sure. So the Thursday editorials are starting to come in, mm. um, and, uh, uh, coming over your Twitter feed. It's, uh, it's already nails on chalkboard stuff. Um, the Atlantic uh, had we've, we've mentioned a lot tonight. I'm sorry to ruin your freelance gig there. Uh, Not always bad. I mean, we've said good things. We've said some good things. But I just said everyone was bad. I just named a lot of people. 
Uh, let's... It's not unlike what Kendrick Lamar did when he named a bunch of rappers that he was saying he was going to murder them. He so mean it. Thank God the Atlantic is here to tell us it is your right as an American to read what you will, yeah. to write what you think, wow. and to publish what you believe. The press is neither the enemy of the people nor its ally, but rather its possession. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jeffrey Goldberg. Come on, dude. <laughs> Come on, dude. Smoke a bowl. Smoke a bowl and read that and pretend you're not giggling. Well, first of all, I want to say The Atlantic is a wonderful publication. <laughs> <laughs> Impeccable editorial judgment on questions like what the cover story should be. That's true. I think I, I worked at the Boston Globe for a couple of years yeah. as a um, sort of permalancer, and I have a soft spot for it. I think it might be that newspaper editorial boards. I don't know how to phrase this. <laughs> certain sense of, of self-importance that maybe doesn't match up with their actual impact anymore. I'm, I'm not sure that many people, I'm glad they exist. And like, I'm me too. I just wrote a column for the globe. Um, the editorial board of the newspaper, the editorial pages in, in particular, but well, you yeah, can't have the newspaper without the, the, editorial. the unsigned editorial. editorial. Are you glad that the unsigned editorial exists at the Boston globe mm. and at other newspapers? Seriously. I, as someone who used to write and edit those editorial. Yeah, no, I, I did like too. That. that was what I was doing at the globe. Um, I think that's a really complicated question. I, I actually think there's a good faith question to be asked of like, so on some sort of esoteric tech issue where the globe has 10 people in an editorial board meeting and two of them know anything about tech. Hmm. Do we care what the Boston Globe editorial page thinks about Facebook privacy? Like, I think that that's a good faith question versus journalists or columnists who really dig into those issues and write under their own name. Um, so, and, and as uh, uh, you know, but listeners might not, what that means is that there's two people who are then trying to convince the other 10 colleagues of the rightness of their arguments and keeping it in line with whatever starry decisis they have. about. Right. Them. Well, and also and on a lot of issues that are particularly um, a not particularly political and technical and expertise driven, often the other eight will just sort of defer, um, I found. And just so, yeah, editorial board is a weird institution. I guess I don't have strong feelings about this because can you imagine anyone whose mind at this point is going to be changed? Like some Trump supporter who hates all these newspapers is going to be like, oh, well, OK, I guess now I don't like Trump. I don't trust him. I just it seems a little bit like a futile gesture. And I could see how someone who already thinks there's liberal newspaper group think would just be reinforced in that. But overall, I've given up on everything and I'm hopeless. So yeah. I don't feel anything. There are uh, uh, in the last election, I think um, the final newspaper endorsement count was something like the same as the number of uh, alt writers in uh, in Charlotte. So it was like <laughs> 220 uh, or something like that to 20 um, to Donald Trump. It was it was nine to one. And Gary mm. Johnson even got like a 10 or, yeah. or, or close to that. Um, almost a complete inversion, by the way, of like 1972. Um, back in the old days, uh, the old days, uh, newspapers their editorial pages were way more Republican. And uh, and Richard Nixon, uh, and I have it somewhere an old reason piece, but it's something like 500 and some odd uh, uh, Nixon endorsements compared to 50, 60, 70 McGovern endorsements uh, back then. So people being nostalgic for how uh, newspapers were holding the feet to the fire of the bad man uh, back in the old days. Yeah, go, go maybe uh, check that out uh, in fuller detail. I don't think anyone reads these things. I just don't. Uh, I, my, I, mean, I, I, I do. I suppose we we all do. We were guilty of reading those things. You read newspaper editorials? I mean, I did. I mean, I do. Do you hate read or do you do you like, hey, the New York Times is saying I should really care about Burma today. (laughs) Well, I don't read it to be persuaded so much as reading it to know what people are saying about things. 
so that I can say things about things. I mean, which has a it's, it's which has a value. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm saying all this to expiate my sins because there was a moment when I uh, lunged for the uh, editorial page editor job at the L.A. Times. Won't bore you with the story, but this is 2007, I think. Um, and the then publisher said to me, say, what do you think about just killing editorials? And my answer should have been fuck yeah, let's just do this. Let's just be radical. Let's go crazy. Yeah. It will be the biggest paper out there to do it. But I suspect a little bit uh, like you, Jesse, like you do see when you're inside that weird institution, you do see some strange value in it. It's a, it's a kind of a sick and warped value. Uh, it is hmm. a, a, a small, but like not without value again. Um, uh -huh. It's, it's the political class talking to itself, right? You have a, a series of grandees come through, the mayor, the governor, everyone. They come through once or twice a year. Stakeholders, you will hear that word so many times you will want to strangle people <laughs> even more than I do after going to the New York school board meeting last night. And Fisher and I are going to go punch lots of people based on this. Uh, but uh, so but they come through, they talk they give their spiel. And it's part of the way that that system talks to one another. I don't know what the the actual value is to the average reader at all. Um, but there is some value to these people interacting with one another and bouncing ideas and kind of challenging one another. And occasionally, and what I tried to do when I was at the LA Times was, okay, well, why don't we bring the reader in? Let's like videotape this stuff. Let's get it out there. Let's let's engage in a way that that is not just a bunch of, you know, 300, 400 people in this city uh, talking to one another and in the kind of sealed sanctum. So I didn't go all the way to say, let's just euthanize editorials when in fact, no one really cares what they say for the most part. And not insignificantly, it is the most economically inefficient part of the entire newspaper. Oh my it's God, not even yeah. close. Yeah. Wait, wait, so you're saying the, no. the publisher, I mean, I feel like this is like a, a scooplet, like the LA Times publisher was thinking of killing editorials. Yes. Damn, that's kind of interesting. Not only that, but in the same conversation, uh, it, uh, it wasn't the same conversation. Uh, in the conversation he had when I left the paper not long afterwards, because he didn't hire me then as being the editorial uh, page editor. So screw him. Uh, David, hi, I'm, uh, uh, not, not nice for you to listen. Um, uh, <laughs> as I was walking out the door uh, from a, a job that I was expected was going to be handed to me after the interim guy left, um, he said, yeah, say, uh, what do you think about us becoming the first uh, major newspaper to editorialize in favor of legalizing marijuana? I'm like, you bastard. You can't do that when I'm walking out of the door. You can't do that. So, no, that's a, he was, a, he was a, a forward thinker, let's say. I will say of the New York Times um, opinion editorial um, written by the editorial board, they do have some choice quotes from Jefferson in it. Um, one of which is George Jefferson, or? Thomas Jefferson, George Jefferson would have been a better choice, perhaps more eloquent. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson, um, the one quote is were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without government. I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter, although that is not necessarily a bold endorsement of newspapers. Um, but it does also include the other. Um, which is nothing can now be believed, which is seen in newspapers. Truth itself becomes specious by being put into that polluted vehicle. Not nearly as ringing an endorsement as enemy of the people, but it has a nice ring to it. Did they include that in the New York Times? They sure did. Oh, that's and, good. And I mean, the premise of their piece is it is totally appropriate to criticize the press for getting things wrong, 
but that in general, the president shouldn't be using this kind of poisonous venom generally directed at the press. Specifically, he shouldn't be labeling anything that is critical of him as fake news. I don't know, you know, how much has changed. The sensibility that we often get is that Donald Trump has shifted our politics. You know, were were they fractious times? Were they difficult times? Were there challenges? Were people concerned about the fate of the union at that stage? Sure, probably more concerned than we are now, although I don't know how to quantify that. I know there are some people who believe that we're on the precipice of tyranny. I keep seeing books that say as much, um, that fascism is about to potentially overtake the country. But I just don't know. It's hard for me to hard for me to get particularly excited. Seems like there's some historical precedent for are, where we are. Don't you think Americans are too lazy for full fascism? <laughs> like to get all when you look at like Nazi Germany out in the streets yeah. every day, all the you know, not the salutes. Yeah. It just seems like a whole Did thing. Did we get that on tape, the little yeah. Kyle? Also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, even getting passionate about stuff only lasts for a minute. No, yeah. after, even after 9-11, the flag waving, it, it didn't even take Iraq for that to fade out. You know, by New Year's, it was already kind of like, ah, oh, nothing. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. You know? It's oh, you, just, Bono's wearing a flag. At the <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the way that we can we can ignore the perpetual military conflicts that are taking place overseas. Like it's going on. Some people getting dead. Mostly not our guys. Not a huge deal. Or even um, it was was it last week or the week before that the New York Times had I thought like a very good thoughtful piece um, about the current conflict that the Saudis are involved in that the United States is supporting, which, I mean, it's fucking atrocious human Crazy, rights violations yeah. that the United States is fundamentally a party to, currently ongoing, not nearly as interesting as Omarosa, which here, may speak to here, a broader problem. Uh, all three uh, um, terrestrial uh, TV networks uh, broadcast uh, uh, evening news tonight on Wednesday as we speak. The lead story... All three wasn't about uh, Trump's attack on the press necessarily. It was Trump's silencing of John Brennan. That was yeah. the lead story on taking all away his security clearance three by taking away his security clearance. Uh-huh. He is silencing proven liar, dickhead uh, <laughs> guy who spied on Diane Feinstein's, you know, uh, people and lied about it yeah. on John Brennan. Um, that's the problem that's that's exemplified in the 200 newspaper editorials and God knows what else in there. Uh, I don't trust. And Lord knows people who haven't worked on editorial boards are not going to trust uh, or going to distrust even more the kind of sense of proportion um, and judgment of people who are otherwise in the business of trying to like tell us what's happening in a, uh, in a semi-fair way um, when it comes to their territory, you know. I'm critic people who are criticizing the president are getting a crackdown upon. Um, they tend to, even though that's a, that can be a, a very bad thing, um, tend to completely lose perspective of that compared to something that actually cracks down on free speech, like the sex trafficking uh, uh, law that was signed overwhelmingly and passed overwhelmingly and signed into law in April. And like a half a dozen, maybe newspapers even mentioned this on their editorial pages, even though it has far greater impact Hmm. on people's ability to speak freely in this country. And so it makes you kind of jaundiced about uh, highfalutin ideas about freedom of the press. Well, we we should get the hell out of here. I mean, Jesse, before we lose you, I I am wondering about something. Just we won't have you next week. And although we're we're friendly, so I suspect we'll talk again at some point. But in terms of our politics and our polity and maybe the broader culture and society, do you have 
particular things that you are most concerned about at this moment? And is it is it a consequence of the ascendancy of Trump, et cetera? And flip side of that, and maybe this is harder because at the current moment, even even I have a little difficulty sort of grasping for something. Is there anything in that universe that you're enthusiastic about? Um it's a weird I, question. No, it's a good question. I'm I'm just incredibly down on everything. Like, I, obviously, a lot of people feel that way in the Trump era, but it's weird. So I, I bounce back and forth. On the one hand, like this idea that oh, if people were just more educated and they understood more policy, they'd make smarter decisions is like seductive. But I don't think that's really how it works. Like Pollyanna, right? Yeah, yeah. People people will really like filter what they learn through their uh, pre existing biases and stuff. On the other hand, like, it seems like people are really, really dumb. Like, they don't understand basic stuff. And that has that has to influence our politics somehow. And then Trump gets elected. Um, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm very worried that people just assume either he'll be, like, impeached or he'll lose again. And I, I, I'm actually curious what you guys, like, what would you guys put the probability on if he's still around and runs again that he would win? Because I, I feel like it's not lower than, like, 30, 35%. That sounds about right. Fuck. 30, 35% chance that he does. That get, he wins. Yeah. Oh, that I he mean, wins. I don't, I don't think that he'll win, but I think it's, it's, uh, hmm. yeah. I'm up to 50, 50. <sighs> I, I don't trust the Democrats to not snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> you don't think the, Star, the Starbucks guy isn't going to do it? Howard Schultz? Even if he does. I mean, like. The, no, I was doing it. I mean, like, the, the, you know. They're not great at math either. They're not. They, they they still don't refuse to accept this electoral college thing as right. a thing. And they when, when in places where they're vulnerable, they still insist on having you know parties and fundraisers to 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 fundraise for their victory parties while not doing the you know grabbing the purple states, grabbing the places where you know your your uh, candidate was beaten by somebody who's not even in your party several times. Right. Uh, if they if they still two years later are insisting that they did nothing wrong and that they 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 ran a flawless campaign with a flawless candidate why couldn't they do it again dude well, that 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 thing of like establishment democrat types being like we did nothing wrong she was a great candidate i i feel like jamming a spork in my eye whenever <laughs> it's so self-serving and oblivious and i like you i'm worried i guess at the end of the day what what really worries me the most and i'll end on a, maybe a partisan note to recover my lefty street cred. Shit, I was going to ask you what you make of the new left as well. Oh, so maybe you can layer that on there. The fact, to me, really, like, the fact that Trump's approval rating doesn't seem to be able to go below, like, what, 40, 38? 40, yeah, that, that's his floor. Like, it sort of suggests we're fucked. Because, again, I, obviously it's partisan. I probably hate Trump more than a Republican who's just, like, mildly annoyed or disgusted by him. But, like, it's crazy. It doesn't matter what he does. He has He has this solid foundation of support of people who just won't give up on him no matter what. And I just don't know where that leaves us as a country because it's not, it's actually not an ideological thing. Someone like this shouldn't be in power. This this shouldn't have happened. And it, um, yeah, man, I just I mean, go, do you think incumbents that, never, it's really hard to beat an incumbent and it's really hard to beat an incumbent with a good economy. Yeah. I right. mean, it's the rigidity of support for an embattled president is not completely new. I mean, even Nixon, when he was exiting during Watergate, like had pretty high approval ratings amongst Republicans. So amongst that contingent, I would expect the president to completely be pretty much bulletproof. And it doesn't mean it, well, you could flip that. Doesn't mean it isn't. Disturbing. No, that's what I'm saying. You could flip that and say, that's what's disturbing. Is well, it, it this, yeah. the same rules that seem uh -huh. to apply to American 
political science in general uh-huh. apply to someone like this? Which is which is why for me, like I am not the least bit sort of heartened by the prospect that Democrats will win four years from now. My my own political philosophy in, instructs me or at least leads me to a place where unless I'm seeing less of a concentration of authority in the executive branch and less confidence overall in Congress's ability to do certain things on our on our behalf, I'm never particularly optimistic about what one administration will do versus another. And in this particular case, the 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 medicine I seem to be getting sold is, well, Donald Trump is so poisonous and awful that we just need to get him out of there so he can return to our previous normal. And I was concerned about the previous normal for for good and relevant reasons. The fact that Barack Obama was supposed to be the guy that got rid of some of the civil liberties violations that we were seeing um, post 9-11 and that he was supposed to be the guy to out to, to disentangle our foreign entanglements. Those things didn't materialize, despite the fact that Sasha and Malia were cute, despite the fact that you wanted to have a beer with Barack Obama, despite the fact that he cared about criminal justice reform. He left that work. It's undone in the most egregious sorts of ways, in my estimation. I don't know. I don't know. My my optimism has to be rooted in something else. I need to find a good answer about what in our politics perhaps inspires me because I'm just not sure. And I would just right. add a, to a, a last note of pessimism that I, <laughs> this I, is I we're doing. We needed more. This is what we're doing. Yeah. No, I, I think that the Trump era will drive Democrats at least half crazy if they're not there already. I think it feels that, like I, maybe they're a little there I think, already. I think the reaction to it is going to produce um, politics that are not going to be congenial to me. Well, tell me what you mean. Okay, so I I hear this a lot. And look, if you go on lefty Twitter, everyone's insane. But there's still a pretty big swath of just registered Democrats in the country, tens of millions of them who just like want another Obama or Biden or something. I'm not saying that's my preference, but I think most people are are normies and maybe aren't going to vote for something crazy or, or what is what is crazy? What are we talking? Yeah, about? I guess yeah, maybe so is it is it Bernie? Is Bernie Sanders crazy? Um. No, I mean, no one's crazy and everyone's crazy yeah. uh, is one way of looking at it. But I, I mean, I think I think d- the center of gravity of the de- Democratic Party is moving uh, much further to the left uh, quicker on economics than we've seen in a long yeah. time. Um, it's still I mean, it's oversold. Uh, like Most establishment candidates in the primary season won. Sure, sure. Opposed to most of the Bernie candidates and, and other things like that. But still, you can feel like that's the beating fire. It's hard for me to believe that, that those ideas won't be able to persuade a lot of people in the right hands. But what's an example yeah. of, a, of an idea you're worried about that has any chance of passing? I mean, I, the, we have different concerns, yeah. but I mean, for me, like growing the state in general is disconcerting. So even something like a, a broad Medicare for all like policy is right. something that I find somewhat distressing. $15 minimum wage is not something I I'm looking for. I find that somewhat distressing. Well, that's not, nationally, you think there's any chance of a $15 minimum wage? Ever? I mean, we're, 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 Maybe. we're breaking Overton windows right and left. Yeah. Uh, and that's, right. that's, uh, I mean, that, that will be in the platform in 2020. But I think this is what I... What often worries me is it seems like would Donald Trump argue against that actually <laughs> a fifteen dollar minimum wage only uh, only for steel workers for, everyone yeah. else is just normal I don't know I don't know but I'm also I I, I think that right now uh, free speech has just 
people aren't even pretending to support that in the Democratic Party anymore. And that's not what I I'm old enough where I remember when that was supposed to be a pretty strong. No, but there's like there's a fight over. I mean, there's like the chate contingent there. Dude, I mean, yes, on on, online like uh, the Twitter fights. Yes. But (laughs) the most important what is the single biggest litmus test uh, for a Supreme Court justice? Uh, from a Democratic point of view, I would say there's two. Roe versus Wade is one, uh, and the other one is Citizens United. And and I've been following this for 15 years now, and it's done the idea of appealing to anyone uh, in the Democratic coalition on Citizens United as a free speech issue. They just – it isn't, um, uh, even though it forces us to censor documentaries, but whatever. Um, and and to have that as a uh, as a fundamental issue, Hillary Clinton, I think, was as bad on free speech as any modern politician has been, uh, with a possible exception of Donald Trump. Um, I, that's an issue that me- that means a lot to me, and I don't see either the grassroots or the leadership going any place good on that uh, for a long time. I guess, yeah. Well, the Democrats are probably never going to get to a point of SCOTUS justice again anyway, so maybe it's a moot point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I, I do have some hope that we've kind of we're kind of eventually going to jump the shark on identity politics craziness because it seems to me that it can really only go so far. At some point, you've completely cannibalized yourself. And I mean, like the white privilege, hysterics and stuff, I just you can really only push. But it. I, I'm, I'm so torn I don't know about- how far. But so many of these issues we've talked about, even the last 10 minutes, there's yeah. like there's the world of of two online and of yeah. like dumb, in some cases, dumb lefty demagogues. And then there's who's actually running shit and mm. who's running shit at the moment is to me, at least on well, a lot of stuff, a pretty far right regime. Sure. Um, and so I but, you know it, it almost. But for me, it almost feels like it's by accident. Like it, it just you it almost feels like you lucked into, I'm using that as if it's an affirmative, a good thing, but I'm, I don't mean it that way. Like Donald Trump, like he didn't expect to win that election. I don't know how the coalition holds together. I don't know that they even have sort of the political aptitude um, or, or vision to achieve much in the way of goals, apart from some general dislike for immigration policy and interest in tax cuts of some sort, but no spending reductions whatsoever. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, what do, what do, what do we fear from them that we might not get from the other side? Well, they can do a, a lot of, st- well, again, we have different yeah. priorities, but the stuff That's they can true. do to agencies and various appointments. Well, some agencies you don't like, I'm sure. Well, yeah. yeah. I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> I, I, to me, the, my gauge of like what we should be more worried about is like, sure, if sure. Hillary Clinton had won, do you think there was going to be a far left government in power? No, no, that wouldn't be my concern. No, yeah. I would, no. concern would be the the war in Syria. Well, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real possibility. Yeah, yeah I mean, we might uh, have. She ran on it. Yeah, did she actually? Ra- I don't even. Well, she ran on uh, intervening uh, aggressively. I mean, I remember very specifically at that uh, that it, it wasn't a debate. They called it like a commander in chief forum or something like that it was hosted by iraq and afghanistan veterans of america it was the matt lauer one remember where they where they were interviewed separately um i guess you guys don't remember it was, i it do was, because no, no, gary no. johnson was excluded oh yeah there was people it was it was at it was at the intrepid uh, uh-huh. right around here and uh yeah i was actually embedded with some angry gary johnson folks before then but yeah i mean she actually explicitly in that in that forum said you know floated the idea of boots on the ground uh, was really trying to show how like that that she is that much tougher than Donald Trump, and she had she really has always been you know 
there really hasn't been an intervention in the last 25 years that she hasn't either supported or floated as a possibly good idea. She but campaigned we, on Libya's smart power at its best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Over I mean, and over again. While it didn't same, make a mistake. At the same yeah. time, Obama was saying it was the dumbest thing he did, the worst mistake of his presidency. Hillary was still owning it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we probably wouldn't have a destructive trade war um, going on if Hillary Clinton was president. Correct. So yeah. maybe it sounds like do we trade a Syrian war for a trade war? I don't. A trade war. I'm still skeptical. You can translate like the campaign rhetoric. Yeah, I don't know. Also, also a Hillary presidency and a likely Republican Congress, probably best case scenario. Dude, uh, divided power. Still something I'm pulling for. Still pulling for that, but I don't know. Anyways, this has been fun and at other times depressing. Depressing. Somewhat. I was going to say mostly depressing. Can someone give us a a high note to go out on? My daughter is adorable. I don't feel like that's enough to lift us out. But you're not going to take her on a flight unless it's. I mean, first class. Yeah. I can give I can give a related high note. I don't have kids, and I think that's great for now. And eventually, <laughs> <laughs> eventually, I'll be ready, and I'll have them, and they'll be great. There you go. That's that's good. Yeah. That's good. We should. Gonna do better than that. You have I didn't to look forward to. Yeah, I didn't know how much I needed this small person. Matt Welch used to tell me all the time, Camille, you should totally be procreating. Why aren't you giving it to your wife in such a way that <laughs> she? Gets do you tell that to eye? a lot of your that's friends? Not he does how actually. I put anything. Yes, yeah, for the photos and the video, which that's is totally inappropriate. My God. But I gave them to you because you're friends. Wait, how old's your daughter? Oh, I thought you were going to ask my wife. <laughs> um, my daughter. <laughs> is, your wife, is your wife single? No, no, she's not. Not currently. Right. She may be working on it, but not currently. My daughter is eight months old. Okay, so no no strong politics yet. Yeah, no strong politics. I thought you were going to ask her like her hand in marriage or something. Nope, that, that would be weird. But the dowry, wait, does the dowry come to me or does it go to him? You'd have to give me a dowry because she's a woman. Yeah, the, women yeah, are the not fathers this of yeah. the women. Not this one. Yeah. No, no, no. no. We're changing the terms of that deal right now. You're going to pay. All right. I think we should get out of here. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. We we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.